It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Tyrus. I'm Liz Clayman. I'm Greg Jarrett. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, July 4th, 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. Today we celebrate American independence with the story of a wounded warrior who nearly died fighting for our freedom. Got out of truck, I was fired from head to toe. Jeez. So I tried to turn to the to that creek that was behind me. But as I was running, those flames overtook me and I collapsed and I'm thinking, this is it. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. To be or not to be a progressive prosecutor. After the murder of George Floyd three years ago, criminal justice reforms became a bigger priority in many urban counties. But has it backfired in some cases? In my opinion, public safety is everything that makes you safe in your community, in your neighborhood. And oftentimes that doesn't involve enforcement. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Happy 4th of July, a day most Americans have off to celebrate our independence. A perfect time to reflect on the cost of our freedom. A lot of Americans have died fighting for it, for us. Many more have been wounded in that fight. And today, one of those warriors has a new book out. That promise started with my dad. Israel Del Toro Jr., known by most as DT, is a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, and the book's titled... A Patriot's Promise. You know, he called us on January 25th of 1988, and he talked to everyone, and I was the last one to speak to him. And, yeah, we have normal conversations like a kid, you know, how you doing, how you behaving, listen yeah. to your mom, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the last thing he tells me is like, you know, son, promise me you'll take care of your brothers and sisters and your family. And, you know, 12-year-old kid's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, sure, Dad. Yeah. Not knowing those are going to be his last words to me. How young are your brothers and sisters at that time? So I was 12. My sister that follows me, she was 10. Then my brother, who was 8, and the youngest, who was 6. A year and a half later, DT's mother died. And he writes in the book he feels cursed. Years later, he had to drop out of college. His grandparents got sick, so he had to work and take care of his siblings. Finally, when they got old enough, he joined the Air Force. But in 2005, while deployed on a mission in Afghanistan, DT's life changed forever. An explosion left him badly burned from head to toe. Yeah, we had a high-value target that we had to capture or kill. But unfortunately, it just kept, you couldn't, we weren't finding them. Uh, So we were heading back to pick up, you know, the guys, and we crossed this creek, and no more than 200 meters did we cross this creek. Do I feel this intense heat blast on my left side? And I'm thinking, holy crap, we just got hit. Yeah. And so it was a roadside bomb, correct? Yes, sir. It was an IED that exploded in my vehicle. And you wrote in the book that you got out. Like, you got out of the vehicle, but you were on fire. Yeah, you know, know, people always talk about how their life flashes in front of them, and I never really believed that. But when I got hit, my life felt like a little movie reel. Like all these images, you know, were popping in, but the most distinct ones that I remember were things that hadn't happened yet. Like, you know, me and my wife finally getting married uh, by the Catholic Church after a third attempt. But the most important one was me teaching my son how to play ball. 
because I, I love baseball. How old was your son at the time of the accident? Three years old. Three. Yeah, okay. just turned three. And something tells me, get out of this truck. And I get out of the truck. But like you said, I got out of the truck. I was fired from head to toe. Jeez. So I tried to turn to that creek that was behind me. But as I was running, those flames overtook me and I collapsed. And I'm thinking, this is it. I'm going to break my promise to my family that I'll always come back. I want to break my promise to my son that I'll never let him grow up without his dad like I did. But most importantly, I was going to break my promise to my dad that I always take care of my family. But you didn't. And I was amazed reading your account of that day. They kept you awake because they feared you wouldn't wake back up if you went to sleep. You finally did, though, lose consciousness. I did. Uh, once we landed on our five, went to the hospital and, and the doctor cutting off my watch and telling me, you're going to be okay. And that was December 4th, 05. I wake up March of 06. Four months I was in a coma. You wake up. What are you thinking? It was crazy. It's like, you know, I wake up and I see my wife, Chief Humphreys, who was like our family liaison officer, and some of the doctors there. And they start asking me questions. Do you know where you're at? And I'm thinking, ah, right. Germany? You know, it's like, no, you're in San Antonio. It's like, well, do you know the date? Well, December something. And they're like, no, it's it's March, Sergeant. And and then I start, you know, kind of focusing on myself. It's like, why can't I move? You know, why can't I talk? And I'm raising my, you know, looking at my hands. I'm like, why am I missing digits? Oh. And they start going into the process about how, you know, we gave you 15% chance to live. 80% of your body has third degree burns. You almost died in those three times, but you still got a long recovery. You'll still be here another year and a half. You may not walk again. And you'll be on a respirator for the rest of your life. And your military career is pretty much over. Of course, they were wrong about all that. <laughs> they were. I never accepted what people said my life was going to be. You know, if I listened to the experts, you know, a kid growing up on the bad side of town, on the south side of Chicago, with no parents, I should have been a drug dealer or game banger. I was neither. I was an athlete and scholar. So why am I now going to accept what these doctors said my life's going to be? I pretty much, you know, told them they can go to hell. And two months after they told me that, I left that hospital walking and breathing on my own. Also compelling in this book, you're, you talk a lot about the recovery process. All of those injuries and the horror of your recovery, there was only one day you said that you wanted to give up. Only one. I call it my darkest hour. People don't realize they look at this and they think this is what I looked like when I you know, woke up. But this is over a hundred something procedures. You know, how many, how, how many surgeries have you had? About a hundred, over a hundred, about 150 now total. Oh, wow. You know, I, I had no nose. I had no upper lip. So this ain't what I look like. So when you're burned, they cover up the mirrors because they want to ease you into your new transition of what you look like. Okay. So you didn't see and anything I, for months. Don't see anything. And obviously I can see my body. It's yeah. not the same. Right. But for some reason in my head, I kind of, I was like, well, yeah, I probably got some singed hair, you know, but I still kind of looked myself. And I remember I, I was, needed to go to the restroom and my wife was helping me and, and, and Gary, who I call my guardian angel, uh, who was my uh, physical therapist, they're helping me. And I slipped and one of them grabbed a towel that was covering the mirror and I see myself and, and, and I break down and I said, I should have died. He should have let me die. And it wasn't a vanity thing. It really wasn't. It was like... Well, shocking. 
it was shocking. I was like, if I'm 30 years old and I think I'm a monster, what's my three-year-old son going to think? You know. But you I'm, hadn't seen your son yet and through any of this. I hadn't. The last time I saw my son was on his birthday on August of 2005. The year before, months before what happened in Afghanistan. Months before, because this was like end of April, about beginning of May when I saw myself. And, and I broke down because I said, it's not about anything. If I think I'm a monster, what's my three-year-old son going to think? And I just wanted to die. I was like, I should have died. And my wife was trying to console me. Gary was trying to console me. And I, and I just didn't want to hear it. I was like, I should have just died. And then Gary says, the thing I'll never forget. And I'm so grateful to him. I was like, DT, all your son wants is to see his dad again. That's all your boy wants. Take us to that moment when you finally did get to see your yeah. son. So like, I'm out of the hospital and I'm coming home for the first time. And I look like a mummy. I really did. Because you're all wrapped up. All I had was a baseball hat on. And he comes running out, and I hear his little feet. You, you sort. I like. He ran like a little penguin, <laughs> you know. He comes running out, and, and he sees me and stops. And all this fear that I thought, yeah. I, you know, that what I was thinking when I saw myself, yeah, came rushing back in. Yeah, because he's looking yeah. at you, and he's trying he's to. Me. He's he's trying to figure it out. Yeah, and he just tilts his head to the side, and says, "Papi," say, "Yeah, mijo," and comes up. Gives me the most amazing hug, the most amazing moment I've ever had because I've seen him being born. Uh, and I remember my wife's like, don't hurt your dad. And I'm like, shut up, woman. Let me hold my boy. <laughs> and, and, and Gary was right. All my boy wanted was his dad back. That's all he cared. And it was a great moment. So then you go through your long, your arduous recovery, your journey. And then you find out that during your time in your coma, you were honored with a purple heart. I'm like, when, when did I get it? Who gave it to me? It was like, well, DT, you know, you were still in a coma and it was President Bush. I'm like, oh, I wish I could have remembered that. Yeah. So he came to your room. He met your wife. He just talks to her in Spanish. And my wife tries to give, you know, shake his hand. And he's like, no, gives her a, a hug. And it's like, you know, I'm here for you and, and your husband. And they go into the room and he spends 20 minutes in my room uh, just talking to me. And, and people, again, don't realize when you're severely burned, you're, you get skinned alive. Because it ain't the burns that kill you, it's the infection. So when you, you lose that outer layer of skin, they keep your room at like 97 degrees. 97 degrees. 97 degrees. And anyone that comes in has to be covered from head to toe. And for him to stay there 20 minutes meant a lot. Incredibly, that was not the end of Master Sergeant Del Toro's career in the Air Force. In 2010, he became the first completely disabled airman to re-enlist, becoming an instructor. DT also became a wounded warrior athlete not just playing adaptive sports, winning gold and silver medals in Prince Harry's Invictus Games. So they introduce you to kind of get you back into society. So I started, you know, you know, playing these sports, you know, from track and field, throwing to shooting to sitting volleyball and to cycling. And I started to excel. I started to get good in it. I started to win. And like I said, I, I started breaking world records and throwing. What are your records in? Uh, so my, my 
my world records and for my class, which is an F45, is shot put, discus, and javelin. I wow. own all three. Wow. And so what do you want to continue to do? What's your future? You know, you know now since I've retired, you know, I, I, I like speaking. I really do. I like going out there. And, well, you're and great speak. at it. You, you tell a compelling story. Yeah, because I saw it as that promise that I, I made to my dad. Now it's to anyone that needs it, that needs to hear uh, the journey I went through to help maybe help them find their spark. So when they get to a bad situation, they can things like, you know what? DT did it. I'm going to do it too. I'm going to beat this. The book is A Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, Keeping My Word. It's out brand new July 4th. Israel DT Del Toro Jr. now U.S. Air Force Senior Master Sergeant, Wounded Warrior, Purple Heart recipient. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No, thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me here. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Paul Baturo with your Fox News commentary. Coming up... America's crime crisis. In these past midterm elections, despite a Republican focus on crime, progressive district attorneys won many races. In Hennepin County, Minnesota, two counties in Texas, including Dallas and Polk County, Iowa, the more progressive candidate won. In one county in North Carolina and another in Vermont, the progressive DA ran unopposed. In Hennepin County, Mary Moriarty told Fox 9 Minneapolis after her win for county attorney. Public safety is on everybody's mind and everybody deserves to be safe. But we have to use data and research and implement uh, the types of things that we know actually work to keep people safe, and they will create a, a more fair and just system. But now just seven months after her win, she's been criticized for a plea deal given to two juveniles charged in the murder of 23-year-old Zaria McKeever. Her parents, Maria and Paul Greer, are furious, noting the suspects may be released in as little as two years. going to kill one of your family members. What are your family members? Amen. And he's going to get away with it again. This is a slippery slope, and it will continue to perpetuate itself over and over again like a vicious cycle. Now, the blue state of New York entertained a Republican candidate for governor last fall as Lee Zeldin focused his campaign on crime. New Yorkers are hitting their breaking point, and we all understood why that was. And we want New Yorkers to have safe streets and safe subways. We shouldn't be passing pro-criminal laws like cashless bail. While Zeldin didn't get the job, others have lost theirs over the way they prosecute crime. San Francisco voters recalled their district attorney, Chesa Boudin, last summer. And just this year, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner resigned after the mayor of St. Louis said she lost the trust of the people. St. Louis is a city with one of the highest violent crime rates. Aside from a new police chief and a new circuit attorney, the mayor says she's working to tackle the problem, acknowledging people do not feel safe. When I became mayor two years ago, I ran on a platform of transforming public safety, and that means 
deploying the right resource to the right call. Tashar Jones is the mayor of St. Louis. And also redefining what public safety means. And in my opinion, public safety is everything that makes you safe in your community, in your neighborhood. And oftentimes that doesn't involve enforcement. And so we're leading with Uh, prevention, intervention, and enforcement, and trying to make sure that um, we're keeping our citizens healthy and safe in all ways. For example, we have a new, uh, well, not it's, it's not so new, it's two years old now, our Cops and Clinicians program, which pairs a behavioral health specialist with a officer, uh, and we deploy them to certain calls. We have a 911 intervention or diversion line. Uh, so when our 911 operators come up with or or in contact with someone who calls in that has a mental health crisis, they then transfer them to our partner behavioral health response so they can speak to someone about their mental health crisis. And that way we don't have to deploy expensive public safety resources. They can talk to someone right then and there and follow, and they follow up with those people. And I imagine that's not just about expense. That's about um, responding to a an issue in which you feel the only option is to call 911 uh, with right. a with a different kind of expertise. Right, right. Because when people call 911, they call for help. Um, and we're trying to make sure that when people do call with help for help, uh, that we're responding with the right resource. And tell us about the resignation of Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. She was one of many reform-minded DAs around the country. But after the handling of one particular case, you said she had some soul searching to do. Um, This was the case of a volleyball player, Janae Edmondson. She was injured by a driver. It was a man who had priors, and there was some question as to why he was even out and about, out of prison. After Gardner's comments about this case, you asked, where was the accountability? I I assume this was not the only case of hers you had concerns about. Well, we want to make sure that we are holding people accountable for the crimes they commit, but also providing uh, some upstream options for them to 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 make a choice. Um, so mm-hmm. we have several community violence intervention programs in our community. We have recently funded eight programs that are operating in eleven of our most dangerous neighborhoods uh, to try to uh, to offer some prevention and intervention methods uh, that turn people away from a life of crime. Um, but if if we offer the carrot and they don't take it, then we also have to balance that with the stick. Okay, so you have a new circuit attorney and recently got a new police chief. And you said with this fresh start, you were focusing on a new police contract and that you hoped it could boost police morale. It's, it sounds like you have a hope that maybe some new blood in these critical positions can shift or change things uh, for the city. Yes. And in St. Louis, uh, we have hired our first police chief from outside of the system in our entire city's history. Uh, Robert Tracy comes to us from Wilmington, Delaware, uh, and previously had experience in Chicago and New York. And he has made a lot of changes in Wilmington, which also used to be known for uh, for uh, uh, an increased violence. Um, they actually called uh, Wilmington Murder City uh, before mm-hmm. he got about five or five or six years ago. And he used uh, some really great methodologies to make sure that uh, officers were uh, following all shots, fired calls, uh, using that information with all of the intelligence that we have, uh, reporting out on a weekly basis, uh, using CompStat met- methodologies and saw some real results. And he's starting to see that in St. Louis as well. He's been on the job for almost six months. 
I wonder when you look around the country and you sort of reflect on, you know, your job and the mayors of other large cities, have things gone too far, like cashless bail, overcrowding resulting in people being released, you know, maybe based on their last crime, maybe then maybe a, a more violent prior? Like, do we need reforms to the reforms now or, or more of an effort to find a, a balance? I think we need a more, more of an effort to find a balance. Uh, and in St. Louis, you know, no one wanted to see the circuit attorney's office fail, but we do have a new circuit attorney and we know that he is applying a standard of excellence to restaffing the office, uh, to working with uh, all of the pieces of our criminal justice system uh, because it's an ecosystem and it only works when all of the pieces are working together. And in terms of maybe some when you look around the country, like like most of our larger cities are run by Democrats. So this is where the conversation does get political. I'm from Los mm -hmm. Angeles. You know, major retailers have closed up shops in Santa Monica. Um, the homeless situation is unlike anything people have seen. People have been in L.A. their entire lives. That includes my parents. Um, you know, you see retailers in San Francisco closing too. home values have gone down there as people leave. I wonder about that political conversation when when people say you know these cities are run by democrats democratic policies what do you say in response to that um i say that you know we have to look all over the country and what our economy is going through right now we're also in the midst of uh of historic inflationary period coming out of a pandemic uh, so we have to take all of these things in context. Uh, I spent some time with Mayor Karen Bass at the recent uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, and we talked about our respective issues, taking care of our unhoused communities. Um, and right now, uh, you know, it's very expensive to live in this country and <laughs> our wages kept pace uh, with the inflation that has happened in many of our cities. And so, you know, we all look at our our crisis of providing affordable housing. Secretary Marsha Fudge uh, also spoke to the U.S. Conference of Mayors this weekend and said that there are an estimated 35 million uh, units of ho affordable housing and currently in need in this country. And we're not keeping pace with providing the providing affordable housing options for people who need it. I've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles and I've interviewed so many people regarding this issue. It seems to me it's not just about costs, right? It's it's about mental health. It's about drug use. I mean, yeah. a lot of the folks yeah. in LA who are on the streets are using and I've talked to providers out there. They say the number one thing that people who are unhoused have experienced is trauma and that's why they mm -hmm. end up using. And I just wonder, you know, about our mental health programs in in this country and people turning to self-medication. Yes, it, it is definitely a crisis. And, and in St. Louis, we experience that as well. We work with our partners as much as we can to find uh, available beds for rehab um, for our unhoused neighbors who need that. Uh, we also have tiny home villages uh, for people who don't want to live in congregate shelters. Yeah. And uh, in, in the year and a half that we've had our tiny home village, we've been able to move 140 people to permanent and supportive housing. Uh, so it's, you know, again, it's about providing the proper resources and the safety nets that people need in order to stay whole. And mental health and substance abuse is a clear need in this country, but we haven't done a good job of funding it. Finally, on criminal justice reform, you know, there is some bipartisan agreement. Um, Republicans have said things need to change with the justice system, more training programs. I know of a guy getting out of prison soon. He got his welding certificate. He's hoping to be working full time in about a year after spending a decade in prison. Where do you see political overlap and agreement on criminal justice reform? 
Well, I think that we all need to first agree that people deserve a second chance um, and we need to set up our systems to make sure that they get that second chance. Um, and that involves banning the box, which we've seen bipartisan agreement on that. Um, and and also, you know, on background checks only needed for certain types of jobs um, and making sure that as people are exiting the system, that they have the uh, the, the the needs or the training that they need uh, to become whole citizens again. You know, we we look at our criminal justice system and try to make sure that we want. Well, I think the goal is we want to make sure that it's restorative and uh, our criminal justice system. Well, our prison system in this country uh, definitely is not has not been restorative for everyone. One more finally for you. What response did you get from people in your town when Kim Gardner resigned? What did people were people saying thank you? Were people saying were people supportive of, of this? I do think a lot of people were supportive um, uh, when the resignation happened um, and it's allowed our city to start the process, the painstakingly slow process of moving forward. Um, you know, like I said before, we need to make sure that all of the pieces of our criminal justice system ecosystem are working and no one wanted to see the office fail. Uh, but we do at we, we hit a point where we needed to move forward. St. Louis Mayor Tashar Jones, thank you so much for joining us and for your insight. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. What's on your mind? Writing to his wife, Abigail, a day after the Continental Congress voted for independence in 1776, future President John Adams predicted that future celebrations would be seen as, quote, a day of deliverance and commemorated by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. He also said it would include, and this is a quote, pomp and parade with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. In other words, lots of fireworks. Well, time would prove Adam's right. You know, 150 million hot dogs are expected to be consumed today, a lot of them by Joey Chestnut at the Nathan's Coney Island Hot Dog Eating Contest. But nearly $3 billion worth of fireworks will be lit off. $3 billion. One of the men responsible for millions of those billions is Felix Grucci. He goes by Phil. Well, Phil Grucci is the CEO of Grucci Pyrotechnics, the first family of fireworks, a distinction awarded after a worldwide competition and the result of six generations of Grucci's dating all the way back to Italy in the middle of the 1800s. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Grucci, you've inevitably seen their work. I spoke to Phil this past week from his Long Island office. He was relaxed, despite the fact that the company was putting on over 65 shows all across the country. This just this week alone, from New York City down to Florida and all the way across the Pacific in Hawaii. Well, Phil's eyes light up when he talks about how much joy he gets watching others enjoy a good fireworks show. He mentioned how the same look of awe and wonder is on an 80-year-old man's face as a 5-year-old's. The only difference, he said the wrinkles on the old man's face. 
Well, fireworks, he said, engage nearly all our senses. We see them, we hear them, and we even smell the black powder. There's also some danger involved, which always adds interest. It's a nostalgic experience for a lot of us, too. July 4th is a time of celebration, but it's also a time to remember. Fireworks light up the sky and light up our minds to thoughts that might need some dusting off. You know, fireworks bring me back to sitting on my father's shoulders at Jones Beach or lying on top of our station wagon uh, to watch the show. I also remember being on a barge one year in the middle of New York Harbor. It was magical. There was also a time I grabbed the wrong end of a sparkler in our backyard. I'd like to forget that, but I can't. You know, there are a lot of metaphorical fireworks in our country and even in our families, and a lot of them don't wait for darkness to go off. These are the worst kinds of fireworks. We all know about political fireworks, but there are the personal ones too. It might be a relationship gone bad, a broken heart, a broken dream, or a child who feels misunderstood. If that's you, hang in there. The smoke will eventually clear. So maybe just for tonight, lose yourself in the beauty of the best kinds of fireworks and revel in America's 247th birthday party. We get to live here, and that's no small thing. Freedom is fragile, but remember, it isn't free. Wherever you may be, happy Independence Day. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, everyone, it's Kennedy, and you can listen to my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It's going five days a week on the Fox News Podcast Network. We're bringing you all the fan favorites. Listen on Spotify, Apple, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.